Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're taking a deep dive into preeclampsia. Although the reasons behind this disorder are not yet well understood, preeclampsia can affect 1 in 12 pregnancies, threatening the health of both mom and baby. So what are its symptoms? Who's at higher risk? And what happens if you do develop preeclampsia? What about postpartum preeclampsia? Eleni Sigas has answers. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Simply Breastfeeding, a prenatal breastfeeding course to help nursing parents feel confident with their newborns. Learn more at birthful.com slash simply breastfeeding and use the code birthful for 15% off. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guided meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive pregnant or new moms. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you. Thank you so, so much for listening and all the love you give the show. And if you like what you hear, what you hear is helpful, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And if you'd like to further support this podcast, then please support its sponsors, who in this week's case are Simply Breastfeeding and Expectful. So May is Preeclampsia Awareness Month. And I'm so thrilled to be talking today with Eleni Sigas, who is the CEO of the Preeclampsia Foundation and two-time preeclampsia survivor herself. One of the things that Eleni mentioned to me after we recorded and that she wanted to make sure that got into the episode is that there is a preeclampsia registry at preeclampsiaregistry.org that serves as a living database to bring together, quote, those affected, their family members and researchers to advance knowledge and discover preventions and treatment for eclampsia, help syndrome, and related hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, end quote. So I've added a link to the show notes as well. You can check that out. If you have something to share with the registry, go do it. All right. Before we start, I do want to give you a heads up that there are instances in this episode where we talk about infant death and loss. So keep that in mind. So here we go. Eleni, it's so great to have you here on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Adriana. I'm I'm really uh, pleased to be with you all today. That's um, we're really appreciative of the opportunity to talk about preeclampsia. Yes, and it's such an important topic. And to tell you the truth, I've had like I've been wanting to do this for quite a while, but I've had requests from listeners, um, I think two or three so far, asking for information on eclampsia and preeclampsia and the whole bit. So I'm so thrilled to have you here and, and that this is happening. Oh, good. Well, it's uh, it's probably an indication of um, how little information they're getting in the course of prenatal care, which is something we're trying to correct. But it doesn't surprise me that a lot of women are, are wanting information. So yeah. excited to do this. Yeah. And before we get into the topic and dive deep, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into this work? Well, like a lot of patient advocates, um, we usually get drawn into issues like this through personal experience. Um, usually not terribly good uh, personal experience. Usually we get into it because something 
not so good happened and and we're really passionate about wanting to make a difference and that's certainly my story um my first pregnancy was eons ago um 20 years to be specific and uh which seems like ages ago but at the same time memories of that experience i can close my eyes and feel like it was yesterday um but 20 years ago was uh, i was pregnant with my first child and uh, suffered from severe preeclampsia that really went undiagnosed uh, longer than it should have. Uh, there were a number of, let's just say, uh, errors of omission that were made. And unfortunately, my baby girl died. I was 29 weeks pregnant. We were rushing to get to a hospital for from one hospital to another, actually, to deliver her by emergency, um, an emergency delivery to save her life and we and just didn't get there soon enough she died in transit um and so that was my horrifying uh introduction to something that i knew nothing about had never heard of and was of course fraught with questions as most women are um so fast forward um got a lot of questions answered and went into, got second opinions on my own health and why this might have happened and was clear to get pregnant again. I did develop severe preeclampsia again, although this time under the care of a very competent maternal fetal medicine specialist. Um, this is an obstetrician who's gone on for additional training for high-risk pregnancies, so I was under his care. And, uh, and so it was a much more managed Mon, you know, highly monitored situation with that second pregnancy, but I did get it again. And it was a matter of just very crucial timing when the baby had no longer, was no longer growing and I was getting sicker. And it was like, okay, time to bail out of this pregnancy. So he came early. He definitely suffered from what was called intrauterine growth restriction. Spent a couple of weeks in the NICU um, that's not a fun experience, but you know what? It <laughs> sure beats uh, having to bury your baby uh, at a funeral. So that was uh, that was my introduction into this world. Um, I did not join the foundation. I did not find the foundation actually until a little bit later. In fact, it didn't even exist through my first couple of pregnancies. And so I joined as a volunteer while I was having my own sort of career in another field and became very involved as a volunteer, uh, spent some time on the board of directors. And then my time on the board was over. And about a year or so later, the, the board of directors at that time uh, approached me to become the executive director. So that was in 2009, January of 2009. And I've been at the helm ever since. So that's uh, that's kind of the maybe not so short story of, of how I got involved in this and, and my background, because I certainly have the lived experience in a number of different ways, not only having lost a child, having my own health severely uh, at risk through that first pregnancy. Uh, I lost half of my body's blood volume and my kidneys failed. And, you know, it was it was not a good picture for me either. Uh, but through that and through the, the next pregnancy and then through a third pregnancy where I was seen by uh, a super specialist, I would call him, who diagnosed me with probably getting preeclampsia again and put me on uh, a, 
uh, a, a beta blocker that would regulate my cardiac output. So my, my heart was working too hard. Even though I was not having high blood pressure yet, my heart was working too hard. And so we put me on a, a beta blocker that would control that, kind of get it into normal range. And so that third pregnancy went beautifully. It was definitely, again, highly managed, highly monitored. Uh, we were concerned about the baby's growth, so we wanted to keep a close eye on that. And uh, But it all worked because I went to 39 weeks and delivered a, almost an eight-pound, just a, an ounce shy of eight-pound baby, healthy baby boy. And my two boys are now 18 and 16 and super healthy and super delightful. And so I have had um, the best and worst of motherhood <laughs> of all extremes through my experience. Indeed, indeed. And even though it's been 20 years ago, I am sorry about your loss. I am sorry that this is how you got propelled into this this work because from you know what you've been telling us, I'm sure it was something we nobody can can even imagine unless they're in that situation. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I wanted to acknowledge that first and foremost. Um, and of course, all this great work that you've that has come out of that and that you're doing and at the helm of the Preeclampsia Foundation since 2009. Um, so as you were talking, tons of questions came into my head of what preeclampsia does and how it goes about and how we, you diagnose it and all these things. So let's get right to it. What is preeclampsia? Probably the shortest way to characterize it, and then we can kind of elaborate beyond that. But the shortest way to characterize it is it is it's a disorder of the placenta, which we know, of course, is the organ that is formed uh, during pregnancy that really connects mom and baby. And so if you think of anytime there is a disease or unwellness or whatever, however you want to characterize it, there's some part of the body that is not working optimally. And in preeclampsia, it's the placenta. And because it is the conduit between mom and baby, it can have an impact on both ends of where it connects to, right? So you've got um, messages and information and uh, nutrients trying to get to the baby, which might be compromised because the placenta is not working optimally. And then you have issues that are happening to mom as well. And the most prevalent one is that her blood pressure goes up and it goes up in a very dangerous way. Pregnancy, or I should say high blood pressure in pregnancy is not your run-of-the-mill high blood pressure that happens outside of pregnancy. It's, it's quite dangerous. Uh, it definitely needs to be monitored very carefully and controlled. But high blood pressure is the most obvious indicator that there is something wrong, and we call it preeclampsia. There are other things that can go wrong as well. It is a, what we call a multi-system disorder because it's not just that your blood pressure goes up. There are other things that can be affected like your kidneys, your liver. Um, there can be uh, swelling in the brain. So there can be uh, an effect on your vision, uh, on other aspects of your, of your brain function, um, and, and of course your heart. So it is a multi-system disorder. 
but it is fundamentally when the placenta is just not operating as optimally as it should be. So is any time that the placenta is not operating as optimal as it should be, is that under the category of preeclampsia, or are there other situations where the placenta is not working great, but it's something else? Um, it could be something else. So, so let's put it this way. The formal definition of preeclampsia is it is when you have uh, high blood pressure in pregnancy that is really as a result of that pregnancy. So not somebody who came into pregnancy with high blood pressure, but somebody whose pregnancy uh, caused this high blood pressure and other things to happen. So kidneys to fail, uh, you know, as I was mentioning before, swelling in the brain, liver, there's a number of things that could be affected. So that really is the classic um, definition of preeclampsia. There are other things that can happen, though, in a suboptimal environment for the baby. So a woman uh, could have, or a baby, as I mentioned with, with my second pregnancy, my son had what's called intrauterine growth restriction or IUGR. Sometimes you hear this referred to as, um, uh, as a, a, an SGA baby or, or um, other things that basically reflect that the baby's growth has been compromised in some way. And so Normally, that is also uh, an indication of the placenta not operating as effectively as it should be. Mm -hmm. And how common is is preeclampsia? How often does it occur? Well, it varies by uh, by country. Um, it varies by region, but generally speaking, you're going to see rates of anywhere between 3 and 10%. And I realize that's pretty broad. But if you really wanted to simplify it, I mean, if listeners wanted to think about, you know, how common is this? It can affect about 1 in 12 pregnancies, which is not terribly rare when you think about it. It's, it's not rare enough that really all women should know what it is, what I should be looking out for, uh, what do I ignore, what don't I ignore, what do I do about it if I have any symptoms? One in 12 is is not rare in my book. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> no, one in 12 is not rare, I don't think at all. And I think it's considering how not rare it is, the fact that we don't talk about it so much is is alarming <laughs> that there's people that don't know what it's about. So yeah, let's go deeper into this of what to look out for. And I, I, like, I really like that you just said what I should ignore and what I shouldn't because my understanding about preeclampsia is that there's all these symptoms, but it's some can show, manifest, some cannot. Sometimes they go very quick. Sometimes it's a slow progress. Sometimes you have other symptoms altogether that are confused with other things. And so that it's, it's kind of tricky to put your finger on it. And in that same vein, you can have a situation where the pregnant person can be saying, I feel horrible, and please take a look at this. And some care providers going, well, I see this happening, but it doesn't, it's not triggering any red flags for them. So they're like, mm, that's probably not it. And the inverse also being possible of having some symptoms, but in actuality, not being preeclampsia. So I, I I know it's complicated. What should people look out for? So, Adriana, you absolutely uh, nailed it, and probably one of the 
you know, several factors that make preeclampsia quite the conundrum in that the symptoms are, are what we call often nonspecific, which means I'm going to go through a list of symptoms here and we're going to talk about these and women need to put them in the, you know, in the category of don't ignore, but none of them by themselves mean, oh my gosh, I definitely have preeclampsia if I have this symptom. So what I would say about these symptoms, in, and there's a difference between signs and symptoms. When I talk about symptoms, these are things that a woman is going to personally experience. So she might be looking down at her hands or looking in the mirror at her face and, and realize that she's swollen. Okay, she's got what we call edema. Um, not so much in the ankles. She might also look at her ankles and go like, oh my gosh, I can't get my feet into my shoes. And while that's um, annoying, that by itself happens to so many women that we would not really consider that kind of swelling or edema concerning as much as if it starts happening in the upper extremities, if it starts happening in the face or the hands, then that would be a symptom that should be reported. Um, I mentioned earlier, like one of the things that it can affect is, is your brain. And one of the ways that that's going to manifest itself to a woman is that she might experience changes in her vision. Her vision might get blurred. She might see auras or stars or twinkling lights. You know, they're seeing double. Any of those kind of visual changes are cons absolutely concerning and should be reported. Um, other symptoms include a headache that won't go away. She's taken Tylenol and, you know, a day later she's still got a headache. Um, that's concerning. That needs to be reported. You don't wait on that. Another one would be upper right abdominal pain. Um, sometimes this is called epigastric pain. Sometimes you hear it referred to as upper right quadrant pain. Basically, if you, if you put your hand uh, right below your right rib cage, it's that area that your liver sits in. And if you're feeling pain in that area, or there might be pain referring to other parts of your body, but it's really emanating from there, that needs to be reported right away. Um, other things would be shortness of breath. Uh, if she experiences sudden weight gain, so if she's gaining five pounds in a week, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, not usually what we look for in pregnancy. So those are some of the symptoms that she herself might experience and should absolutely be reported right away. There are also clinical indicators, and that's, that's what we might call signs, and that's where you might see the high blood pressure. So if she's monitoring her own blood pressure and she sees it going higher than normal, that needs to be reported, um, even if she's going to a local pharmacy or drugstore and using one of those machines, which I realize are... Uh, not necessarily the most accurate, but they're still indicators of something. Uh, so if she's got higher than average blood pressure, absolutely needs to be reported. And then the thing that she's not going to necessarily be able to measure unless she's, you know, really um, diligent about this. I mean, I know in my second pregnancy, I went and bought my own container of protein strips to pee on to see if I had protein in my urine. But the reality is most of the time that kind of an indicator is going to show up in a doctor or midwife's office. Which is also why prenatal care is so important. Critically important. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's probably, you know, there, there are probably two main messages to women who are, who are pregnant. And one of them is absolutely keep your prenatal appointments. This is why prenatal 
visits were even invented was to monitor for preeclampsia. That's why you, I always say, that's why you get your blood pressure checked, it's why you pee in a cup, and it's why you get on a scale. Those are the three things that almost always happen at every prenatal visit, and it's because they're looking for preeclampsia. Mm. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, one of the things that's not on this sort of official list of symptoms, but I would say to women is trust your instinct. We have this, uh, many of us have this innate sixth sense, and we know when something is not right with our bodies. And a lot of times we kind of science our way or think our way out of listening to that inner voice. And we need to listen to it because we know our bodies and we know that voice and we need to listen to it. If something doesn't feel right, talk about it. Get with your healthcare provider and talk about what you're feeling and then let's you know systematically go through the signs and symptoms and see what else might be going on. They then can take a blood test, see what's going on, you know, chemically in your body, uh, check your blood pressure, do those other things. Mm. But those are the, those are the main signs and symptoms. And believe me, there's, there's a number, I mean, there's exhaust and a more exhaustive list of, of symptoms that have been reported in the literature and that women might experience. But those are the most obvious ones that are indicators of that organ dysfunction that I talked about earlier. Right. If there's something going on wrong in one of your organs, this is the way it's going to show itself to you. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's dig deeper into what happens if you do have preeclampsia and what does that mean for the con- your care during pregnancy and of your baby from then on. We'll be right back. Breastfeeding, it may be natural, but that sure does not mean it's easy. It's a learning process for both you and baby, and like most learning processes, it takes a lot of trial and error. However, this trial and error can sometimes come with a lot of crying, and not necessarily only from your baby. Help lessen the crying and frustration by arming yourself with some solid knowledge. A great way to prepare for this is by taking the Simply Breastfeeding Online class created by breastfeeding experts Cindy and Jana. In their class, you'll learn to recognize what your baby is telling you and how to meet your baby's needs starting in the very first hour after birth. You'll also understand the basics of breastfeeding and be able to return to them if you encounter difficulties, and you'll feel confident knowing the answers to most frequently asked questions. Lessen your anxiety and frustration and relax knowing you've got this. Go to birthful.com slash simply breastfeeding to learn more. And as a Birthful listener, you get 15% off if you use the code Birthful when you register. Go to birthful.com slash simply breastfeeding or click the link on the show notes to get you on your way. And we're back talking with Eleni Sigas. And I, I've got to say, though, I really loved your second point that you mentioned before we went for the break on trusting your instincts. And and funny enough, the tagline for this podcast is talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Mm. <laughs> because I exactly right, because I believe that's that's you've got to know what's going on, but also put all that information in your body and into what you're experiencing and your reality because this pregnancy obviously happens inside you um, and you are more finely attuned with what's normal and what's wrong than anybody else. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we, you know, one of the mantras that we um, are constantly quoting here at the Preeclampsia Foundation is that it is, it's a patient partner, uh, patient provider partnership. 
So the doctor or the midwife is an expert on the, the medical side of what's happening, and that's what they bring to the table. But what we bring to the table is expertise on us, right? I know my body. I've lived with it for 20, 30, 40 years. I know what is my normal. I know when things are off, and that is a super important piece of the puzzle that we have to bring to that partnership with our healthcare provider. Huge, huge. Um, so I, I think it's really important to make sure people know that. And I love that that's your mantra because it, and healthcare, as we usually are brought in, not just for pregnancy, but in general during healthcare, there tends to be a, you know, somebody else is the expert and there's a, there's a, a hierarchy differential where you sometimes might be scared to speak up or or a little bit hesitant to do so because you figured, well, they told me this and they know better. Oh, yeah. Oh, believe me. There's story after story. And, and unfortunately, most of us kind of learn the hard way that that's not the case and that we really do need to be actively engaged in our care. And you know what? For a lot of women, Pregnancy is their first really run-in, if you will, with the healthcare system because most of us are are healthy um, young adults, and we go into our pregnancies, and it's our first um, our first exposure to to the healthcare system for a lot of folks. Not everybody, of course, but it's a chance to it's your first uh, lesson, if you will, in how do I do this? How do I engage with my provider in a way that is a partnership, that I bring what I know and they bring what they know, and together we're better? Yeah, absolutely. So do we even know why preeclampsia happens? You know, the short answer is no. Um, certainly certainly not in a way that will, that would strongly inform what we might want to do to prevent it, for instance, or how we would treat it. Science is hard at work on this. And at a super scientific level, we definitely are starting to get clues. Um, It's not, you know, a big black hole with no information. We're, We're so much further ahead than we were 10 years ago in understanding what's happening at that sort of molecular level and, and what's breaking down. And, you know, there are, there are these factors in our placenta that are uh, in too much abundance or they're lacking. And this is contributing to that placental dysfunction that I talked about earlier. But there is enough that is unknown that I think the short answer to the question is no, we really don't know exactly what causes it. We definitely have clues. We are starting to figure out that the cascade of effects, you know, that First A breaks down, and that leads to B breaking down, and that leads to C, you know. that So we're starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But believe me, when, when, when you don't really have the, the top of the box of the puzzle box and see what that finished picture is supposed to look like, it's sort of like trying to put a puzzle together without knowing what the finished picture is supposed to look like. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, and, and not for nothing, but as you mentioned, in the past 10 years, big strides have been made in trying to figure this out. My daughter's 13. When she was born, there was there was just the answer was a big, fat, definitive no. Now yeah. at least there's like, well, no, but we're trying to figure it out. Um, and- well, and we're and we're we're figuring it out enough to the point that uh, there are a number of uh, researchers and uh, even 
pharmaceutical companies and diagnostic companies that are starting to invest in this space because they're seeing, wow, we, we actually have some ideas about potential solutions. So again, you know, 10 years ago, the, the amount of research in this space and the kind of R&D that was happening was, was embarrassingly little. Um, I think, you know, we're proud of the fact that it's on the map in a lot of places now, and, and there are some things being looked at. And, you know, I think for women, and Adriana, you're probably going to eventually want to ask me, you know, what about who gets this? You know, who needs to pay attention to this? And But I laugh because that whole thing of understanding risk factors and who gets it also kind of leads into, well, what causes it? And it could be caused, uh, the causes could be very different for different people. And it's kind of like, what do we, what do we as individuals bring to the table when we get pregnant? What is our, our health composite, if you will? And, and so what might be the trigger for me getting preeclampsia could look very different than someone else's trigger for what causes them to get preeclampsia. Hmm. So I will ask the question, who's at a higher risk for getting the preeclampsia? And it seems like you don't have a straight answer from what you just told me. Well, well actually, my, my straight answer, anytime people start asking me about risk factors and who gets it, I, I do have, I mean, there are clearly some women who are at higher risk and who should absolutely be on high alert, if you will. Um, but I always want to preface this part of this conversation with saying, because believe me, we all, we all do this. This is human nature. I do this. Anybody does this. You look at any health condition out there because we could spend our lives being scared to death about everything coming down the pike. And so we instantly run through this filter in our brains uh, when we learn about something new and we go, well, could I get that? And you sort of do this checkbox like, well, I'm not this. I'm not that. I don't get this. I don't, okay, I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about that. So in this case, I, I, we do have some risk factors but the biggest message I want to make sure that your listeners are getting is that even if you have no risk factors, you still need to pay attention to this because there are many of us, myself included, who came into pregnancy with zero risk factors, at least presumably zero risk factors, and I still got it in pregnancy number one and pregnancy number two. So having said that... Um, Ironically, one of the risk factors, and I say that, you know, presumably no risk factors, one of the risk factors is first pregnancy. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is probably the best way to say this, but it's almost like guilty until proven innocent. Until you have put your body through the strain of pregnancy, which is a perfectly beautiful, normal function of the body, don't get me wrong, it, but until you have sort of tested it, pressure tested your body against the strain of pregnancy, you really don't know how you're going to react. So first pregnancies um, are, you are at higher risk in your first pregnancy than you would be in subsequent pregnancies. If you've had preeclampsia in a previous, previous pregnancy, then you are at higher risk than, you know, the average woman out there. Um, if you have preexisting conditions like kidney disease, chronic hypertension, uh, sickle cell disease, a whole host of autoimmune disorders, any of those pre-existing conditions can put you at higher risk for developing it. Uh, things like polycystic ovarian syndrome. There are some blood clotting factors that you may have that you may not even know about. In fact, for a lot of women, pregnancy kind of uncovers this, uh, the fact that they've had some clotting disorders. 
Um, obesity and older age are two of the biggest contributors that are probably why we are seeing more and more preeclampsia instead of less and less of it. So as our moms are getting pregnant later in life, uh, they might go into those pregnancies less healthy, carrying more weight than they probably should be. All of those things that cause you to potentially go into that pregnancy less healthy contribute to a higher risk. Again, doesn't mean you're going to automatically get it, but it does kind of contribute to a higher risk level. So um, what are some other risk factors? Um, in vitro fertilization, if you've had any kind of assisted reproductive technology, you're at higher risk. If you're a particularly young mother, so I mentioned being an older mother, so you know, 40 or older, but also the 18 and youngers. So some of our teen moms, um, they're at higher risk. And uh, having multiple gestations, if you are pregnant with twins, triplets, et cetera, you're definitely at higher risk. And, uh, and then there's some other things which include family history. So taking a look at what was your mom's history with pregnancy. Do you have a lot of heart disease in your family? Uh, those kinds of family history issues can also contribute to you having higher risk. And I think the last one that women would, would want to pay attention to is if they have diabetes. If you're coming into that pregnancy with diabetes or if you have a family history of diabetes, uh, those are other risk factors. And my next question is going to be, uh, what can you do to, is there something you can do to prevent preeclampsia? But it seems like a lot, you know, taking some of these the, these risk factors in the flip side of being healthier. So I'm guessing things like, you know, improved nutrition and exercise, are those some things that will, can help prevent it? Do we have some better idea? Um, well, certainly, and of course this applies to, to any pregnancy issue, is you absolutely want to go into that pregnancy as healthy as possible. Um, so if you look at all of those risk factors and you say, well, is there anything I can do to prevent preeclampsia? Well, the short answer is no. There, there is no like take this pill and you're going to prevent preeclampsia kind of a solution. But if you look at all those risk factors and think, okay, what can I do to minimize my risk? Are any of those modifiable? Are any of those things uh, that I might bring into this pregnancy something that I could do about before I get pregnant? So if you look at it that way and just say, I just want to reduce my risk. So I'm going to go into this pregnancy as healthy as possible. Uh, if there are underlying conditions like high, uh, like high, uh, high blood pressure, you want to have that under control. And, and that might mean being on medication. And there are medications for high blood pressure that you can take while you're pregnant. So there are, uh, you know, think of it as reducing your risks wherever possible. If you have pre-existing conditions, doing whatever possible to sort of get them under control and be, you know, managed carefully during that pregnancy. And then if there are modifiable risk factors like your weight or your eating habits or smoking, you know, those kinds of things um, are, are things that as women we can we can sort of take back control over and say, I'm, this is something I'm going to do for myself and for my baby and go into this pregnancy as healthy as possible. The other things, because you're, you're asking this question under the big category of, is there anything I can do to prevent it? Um, at this point, the only other, the only other thing is to take aspirin 
if you do carry any of the risk factors, uh, particularly the more severe risk factors. And so that I would say, talk to your healthcare provider, but taking uh, what we call low dose aspirin or like a prenatal aspirin, that's about 80 to 100 milligrams. You know, again, you would talk to your, your care provider about this, but starting that in your first trimester of pregnancy is going to help some women. It is not going to help everybody, but it is going to help some women. And it's been tested enough to know that there's really no downside to taking it. So if it's something that's going to help offset some of your increased risk, then absolutely do it. Mm, that's so interesting. Let's take another quick break. Um, and when we come back, let's talk about what happens if you do have preeclampsia. We'll, re we'll be right back. I used to get really upset when something woke me before the alarm and I couldn't get back to sleep. Now I don't really mind anymore, or I mind only a little bit because I use that time to meditate. If it's in the middle of the night and I'm still tired, meditating usually helps me drift off to sleep again. And if it's almost time to wake up, then meditating at that point gives my day a great and calm start. I know that during pregnancy, this having to get up many times a night can be super annoying. So turn it around, flip it, and make it an opportunity to reset your nervous system. A super easy way to do this is by using the Expectful app, which is one of my favorite resources to help pregnant and new moms find their zen and ground themselves. I really like that it's designed to fulfill your pregnant or new parent needs by focusing on whatever you want help with at that particular moment. So whether it's getting back to sleep, connecting with your baby and partner, embracing your identity, lessening stress, dealing with uncertainty, Expectful is there to help you out. If you have five minutes, you have time to meditate. Go to expectful.com slash birthful to sign up for their free two-week trial and check it out yourself. Don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. So expectful.com slash birthful. And we are back talking about preeclampsia. So I want to talk about what happens if you do get or diagnosed with preeclampsia. But one quick question I had that came up to me, what came to my brain while we were on break, is in terms of the high blood pressure, because that seems like to be the number one thing that people attach to when monitoring um, high blood pressure. So is when if your blood pressure starts going up for preeclampsia, is that something that happens slowly or is that something that happens very suddenly, like the edema on the upper limbs, that would be a sudden thing happening? Well, this is what adds to the challenge of preeclampsia because any of those things that we talked about that might be that might be indicators of preeclampsia, some of them might come on slowly and some might come on very suddenly. I wish I could say, oh, well, if you have this, it's going to come on suddenly. If you have this, it's going to come on slowly. It varies by person. And it's for that reason that really the guidance is if you have any of those symptoms, whether it's blood pressure or headache or the upper extremity swelling, any of those things, the guidance is really don't wait. Don't be like, oh, well, I've got my next prenatal visit next week. I'm just going to let them know about it then. No, you need to be on the phone with your healthcare provider immediately. Yeah. They're, they're going to look at those symptoms in the context of everything else going on with you. Um, if it's something like high blood pressure, that may very well need to be treated immediately. 
because that getting out of control leads to some of the other disasters that preeclampsia can lead to, like having uh, having a stroke, having seizures, um, having a placental abruption. You know, those kind. I mean, we we haven't really talked about all the all the horrible things that can happen if you have preeclampsia, but most of those terrible things can be uh, warded off if you get in and treat the high blood pressure as quickly as possible. And then it's really a matter of if you are diagnosed with preeclampsia, then it is that really careful balancing act of what's mom's health, how long can she hang in there, and what's going on with the baby. Because we know in general the baby's going to do better in the womb than outside. But that only works if the baby's in a friendly, you know, nourishing environment. If it's in a, a not great place, then we got to start talking about delivery. And because that's really the thing that starts the, the wheels in motion in terms of um, treating preeclampsia and reversing the effects of it. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit more. You hinted at some of the things that can happen if you develop preeclampsia. Let's go deeper into that. Well, starting with the baby, because delivery is usually the, the end point of where this whole thing ends up, um, it means that sometimes babies have to be delivered prematurely. And we don't necessarily need to get into a whole conversation about what can happen with a prematurely delivered baby, but you're talking about a number of um, developmental things that have to be addressed. And NICUs are, are wonderful places today. We've just, neonatology has come so far in what we can do to our babies that are born too small or too early. Uh, having said that, it, it's not easy. You know, that, that is definitely uh, a side effect of having preeclampsia and having to deliver is, is the baby's going to, the baby's growth is going to be potentially compromised. Um, and, you know, all the things associated with that lung development, brain development, on and on and on. Um, in, in my case and in the case of others, you might have what's called a placental abruption. So that's where the placenta separates away from the, the wall of the uterus. And that is going to affect the baby in a big way. It's also going to affect mom because she's probably hemorrhaging uh, while, this, while this organ has basically ripped away from the uterine wall. So that's, uh, those are both really bad effects for baby. And of course, as I shared in my own experience, um, having the baby die is, is just the most horrific outcome that is devastating to, to mom, to parents, to everybody. Um, on the mother side, some of the, the bad things that can happen, I mentioned it could lead to stroke, it can lead to seizures. Um, it can lead to organ failure, whether that's liver, kidneys, uh, lungs. There, there's a number of organs that can be affected. Um, you know, coma. I mean, the, the worst possible outcomes, if it goes far enough, can can and do happen. Um, mo you know, if it's managed effectively, what you're really looking for, sort of the most optimal place we can hope to be in today with what we do know is getting her blood pressure in in a manageable range so she doesn't have a stroke or seizures or, or things like that, and getting her stabilized and hanging on, kind of taking a watch and wait approach to see how long can we keep her pregnant while baby is still growing and she is stable. 
And that is a day-by-day, sometimes hour-by-hour assessment that has to be made. And when it is deemed like this is not good for baby or mom anymore, then we need to deliver. And delivery is the treatment. Um, You know, once we get that placenta out, then the disease process starts uh, reversing. And that's sometimes that can take days or weeks and that's why the postpartum period is also super important because it might take quite a while for mom to be healthy again. Even though the baby's out, there are things that she could still be experiencing days or weeks later. Right. And because we, when you started talking about this, so of what is preeclampsia, of having that, that the placenta that is not working, that is taxing mom's system and baby's system to an extent. Like it's putting them under undue stress. So it's that balance of how much is this, how much are they under stress? Is it very threatening? And depending on how far that went, how, how, how much damage was done, reversing it can take quite a bit of time. Not just, you know, it's the damage, the deterioration stops once the placenta comes out, but getting you back to healthy can take a few weeks is what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. And actually, interestingly, for some women, they actually get all the way through delivery feeling fine. They never get diagnosed with preeclampsia until afterwards. And that's the really freaky thing. People are like, I had postpartum preeclampsia. I had no preeclampsia until after the baby was born. How is that possible? And believe me, that's that's a head scratcher because you're because of what you just described. You know, that's the case is you want to get the placenta out of there and then sort of the mop up process begins. But the reality is that there was probably something already in play and it was not really diagnosed. It wasn't apparent. And then she delivered and then things started, you know, the cascade continued to a point then where there was something clinically apparent after delivery. So how long after birth is there a possibility of developing postpartum preeclampsia? Technically, the literature will say up to six weeks. Honestly, if a woman really was, you know, had a perfectly normal pregnancy and delivery and was thinking, oh, I still need to be aware of postpartum preeclampsia. The main thing she's looking for is her blood pressure to be normal. And that is more like a two to four week process uh, for that to, to come into normal range or to be considered, you know, we're past the, the danger zone, if you will. Um, having said that, if women do end up with preeclampsia and their blood pressure goes up, some women are on antihypertensive medication for months after the pregnancy trying to get things back to normal. And it can be really demoralizing. You're thinking, oh my gosh, I was so pregnant. I was so healthy before pregnancy. I never had high blood pressure. What's going on? And I come out of this pregnancy and now I've got to take blood pressure medication and you know, this is terrible. It, for most women, it will eventually resolve. But it, what it speaks to is a bit of a window into a woman's future health because those of us who had preeclampsia are at much higher risk of developing heart disease later in life and a lot of people will talk about pregnancy as almost like a window into your future health that that's a clue you know you got to it's you can look at it as oh great one more terrible thing that's going to happen to me 
Well, you can look at it that way. You can say, actually, I was given an early warning indicator and I am, have been given an opportunity to manage and monitor my heart health in ways that other women would just ignore. I've been told, okay, I'm at higher risk for this. I am not going to blow off my heart health. I'm going to pay super close attention to it. And it really also speaks into how intensely pregnancy takes every system in your body to an extreme state of of, of being taxed and worked, right? Of being almost oh, overworked, betcha. right? Of we're taking all these systems and taking them right to their edge and maybe past that. I mean, yes. with your increased blood volume of 50%, like that's such an immense adjustment. And I always like to point that out because I think in general, we don't give the moms the time and we don't ourselves don't consider how our bodies were changed and that they need to, you know, you need to give your body that time to recover and go back to some stasis after having been taxed so much. Um, For sure. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of conversation now that, that we're very supportive of. And it's, it's looking at that postpartum period through a very different lens than we've typically looked at. You know, I think, I think we, we moms, we are superheroes. Don't get me wrong. Oh, we're <laughs> super mighty. Yes, we absolutely. are super mighty. Yeah. Having said that, we need to give ourselves a, a little break when it comes to my gosh, you know what you put your body through through pregnancy and then delivering this baby, even if however it's delivered. Um, that postpartum period, which is not just a couple days, it really does need to go on for several weeks of being very kind to yourself and getting support and getting help, paying attention to warning signs, not blowing them off. Of course, our attention is on this bundle of joy that we just had, uh, that we hopefully brought home. But even with that, pay attention to yourself, pay attention to your own health, um, speak up, get the help you need. And that includes your mental health. You know, oh, very I, mean, much so. I know we're not necessarily talking a lot about yeah. postpartum depression, but if you have been through a traumatic pregnancy experience, which preeclampsia probably, if you experience it, it's, it was not expected. It probably threw you way off your game and you, you came out of that experience going, what the just happened? <laughs> and if you do give your mental health a checkup as well, a lot of women who have very traumatic pregnancy or birth outcomes, um, even suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic anxiety as a result of that experience. So pay attention to your mental health as well. Absolutely. And, you know, you were mentioning that according to the literature for six week, weeks after delivering that there's that window of possibility of postpartum preeclampsia and that checking your blood pressure is like the number one thing to do while at the same time usually we tell moms you know they deliver and then their health care provider says I'll see you in six weeks <laughs> yeah and actually we're looking to change that yeah um, the ACOG just came out with a, a new uh, committee opinion on this it's it's not formalized as standard of care but it is a strong opinion that we need to be seeing women uh, sooner and more often during that postpartum period and I will say that if you had any kind of high blood pressure in pregnancy or immediately afterwards the guidelines do say that you do need to be seen within a week to have your blood pressure checked 
because even if you didn't have preeclampsia, there is a natural rise in blood pressure about a week after delivery. And if you add that natural rise in blood pressure on top of some kind of pathology, some kind of, you know, system failure, if you will, uh, it, that's why we see a lot of things happening even a week or two later. Mm, no, and I was so excited to see the 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 community opinion come out. Um, which yeah, it's very recent. I don't think it's been a month since it came out because it like, yeah, I'm I'm such a supporter of and and advocate for postpartum care, both you yourself and by the the system that surrounds you and helps you, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Now with this of. Uh, the, the, so we've talked about preeclampsia. What is the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia and even HELP syndrome? They're all sort of a part of the constellation of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The The simplest way to delineate them is... and, and this is sort of just a fault of the original naming of all this stuff. Eclampsia basically is the continuation of preeclampsia that leads to having seizures. Um, preeclampsia without seizures is dangerous. It's, you know, women can have terrible outcomes without ever having had a seizure. But once you've had a seizure, then it goes from being called preeclampsia to being called eclampsia. And that really just comes from the old, I mean, we've known about this disorder for 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years. And at the time, there was no way to measure blood pressure. So the only indication of something going wrong was when the woman would be having a seizure or what they sometimes call fits in some countries, even today. But that would be the only visible indication that something was going wrong. And it was called eclampsia. It comes from the Greek word for lightning, uh, kind of striking out of the blue. And so she has seizures. That's the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia. HELP syndrome is a, a particularly severe variant of preeclampsia. And it stands for, it's H-E-L-L-P. It stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. And all of those are uh, factors that contribute to somebody being diagnosed with HELP syndrome. And the biggest issue is that your liver is affected. That's, that is a significant uh, character, characterization, if you will, of HELP syndrome, is that your liver is severely affected. That affects your liver enzymes. Um, your platelets uh, will drop. You know, so there's a, there are a number of things that are happening to, to blood production in your system that have you have what's called HELP syndrome. And it's, you know, it's definitely much rarer. You know, you don't see as much of it, but when you have it, it's usually worse. Mm. It's, it's definitely not something you want to. Yeah. And uh, I'll link on the show get. notes. I did an episode with a, uh, a mom that had experienced help, um, or syndrome and we actually turned it into two a two part because the first part was just talking about her experience with the syndrome and the outcome for her pregnancy and her almost dying as well um and then the second episode was on a, when she did manage to get pregnant again and that experience throughout so i'll link on the show notes um on that but i remember her saying one of the things that seemed particularly <sighs> harsh about the help syndrome is that 
she had pretty much no symptoms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And we hear that a lot with help. Um, it, it's, I mean, that just seems so unfair that the worst, you know, that the worst uh, manifestation of this often comes with the fewest number of symptoms. Uh, the upper, the the pain, the upper right quadrant pain, tends to be more present with help because, of course, it is the liver that's being affected. The problem is, is that pain manifests itself so differently in different women. We've had women who have expressed it as pain in their shoulders, in their neck. It it's, will sometimes refer to other areas of the body. And that just makes it really challenging for healthcare providers to instantly kind of, you know, hone in ex- ex- on it being HELP syndrome. What does help is you can absolutely have a blood test and look at what's happening to things like liver enzymes and platelets, which is much more definitive. Yeah, and that's what she had. Her pain was radiating to her shoulder, her to the, like the, the top back of her shoulder. Um, so nobody, she wasn't being heard. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think that's that's the other thing about all this that a lot of these symptoms, and especially if you're going into postpartum uh, preeclampsia, what's going on is something that also borders on normal and expected through pregnancy. You're expected to have pains. You're expected to have, you know, as you said, the first week after your blood pressure naturally increases or, you know, be feeling extra tired while you have a newborn that isn't sleeping or you're being woken up every two to three hours to feed this baby. Like tiredness is par for the course. So it makes it harder to figure out what's what. It sure does, Adriana. That's uh, and and then being heard, and trying to find that that fine line between overreacting and you know being nobody. Everyone who I talk to about this says, "Oh, I don't want to be one of those women." <laughs> those women, which means what? You know, the women who who overreport every single little thing. You know, I I get that. We, you know, if you think of this whole thing, we're all on a spectrum. You've got women who, who are so in tune with their bodies that they report every little thing and they're, they're, um, super diligent. And then you have women on the other end of the spectrum. And it's funny cause I, I talk a lot to healthcare providers in a number of settings about this issue. And I'm usually reflecting the opinion of women who come to us in droves who say, I wasn't heard. I tried to report this. How come I didn't, you know, I, I had these symptoms. I didn't, why didn't I know about this? Why wasn't I told during my prenatal? So these women who are on the diligent end of the spectrum are who we are often representing when we are telling providers, listen to your patients, listen to your moms. They know their bodies. And oftentimes what I'm hearing from from doctors or nurses or midwives is, okay, thank you for that, Eleni. Now help us get through to the women who are on the other end of the spectrum, who are in denial, who we tell them, you are sick, you are not well, I'm looking at your lab results, I'm looking at your blood pressure, this is not good, we need to get you to the hospital, we need to deliver you. And the women are in denial, and they're saying, but I feel fine, I'm going home. So it's interesting because we're all on that spectrum somewhere and and providers get frustrated with the women who are in that denial end and who aren't paying attention to when something is wrong and they're not listening to it. So the thing that I would really 
counsel, and, and this is going to sound like, you know, motherhood and apple pie, but being an empowered, expectant mom means having knowledge, having a, a, an awareness, not a fear, but an awareness of things that you need to sort of pay attention to, and a confidence to be able to report it to your provider and demand to be listened to. And if your provider's not listening, to go to somebody else and say, please listen to me. This is not right. This, I don't, something is wrong. And there are some very specific things that can be looked at, like taking her blood pressure, possibly taking it a few times. If blood needs to be drawn to be, to look at what's happening there, that can be done. And then revisiting an appointment with her soon, not waiting a week or two weeks to see her again. And those are the kinds of things that we as women can insist upon. We can insist on, I'd like a copy of my labs. You know, give me a copy of what you've got so I can keep this in my files. They, if they see that you care about what's happening, then they might be more apt to listen as well. Yeah, and, and there's so many layers to that just because, as you say, there's a big spectrum, both for the pregnant person and for the care providers. And, you know, it's just fresh in my mind because I did an episode very recently, but we have these levels of intersectionality where we've seen people of color and black mothers having much more worse outcomes because then there's other reasons why they aren't being, them specifically aren't, or that population isn't being heard or, or is being heard even less than... The general uh, yep. population. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And by no means do I mean to diminish the fact that those racial disparities are in part driven by the, the, the greater challenges that some of them have in being heard and that being taken seriously and, you know, have, being able to report a symptom and have it followed through on. So for sure, that's a big piece of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll link to that episode as well. One last question, because this is one thing that has come up. So as a birth doula, this is something that has come up with several of my clients. And I think going back to that big spectrum of things that can happen, I what about people who have white coat, high blood pressure? So white Me, coat hypertension yeah. is, is an interesting thing. I... There are a lot of healthcare providers who would tell you that even if the only time your blood pressure is spiking is when you're in the doctor's office, which is basically what white, ho white coat hypertension is referring to, that still is an indication that your blood pressure is not normal. What, you know, labile pressures, pressures that go up and down may actually be precursors to them going up and staying up. So while I would not say, you know, freak out if you have white coat hypertension, it's enough, I think there are enough healthcare providers who study this intently who would say uh, a couple things. Number one, you might be a great candidate for somebody who should have a blood pressure monitor at home or some other way to take it in a very relaxed environment where you can ch check it and see what's really going on at home. And then the other piece is, if you are having these pressures that are going up and down like that, we probably need to keep a closer eye on you because that's probably an indication of blood pressure that's starting to go awry. Mm. And I can appreciate that collaborative way of working at 
because um, in in the cases, and again, it's anecdotal, but the cases that I was speaking that I'm I'm talking about, um, these moms had they had seen throughout their lives, like going back to what sits right in your body and your intuition. They knew that this wasn't something specific to them being pregnant. That it's something that had happened throughout their lives. That when they went to a doctor's office, their blood pressure was high. So there's the difference of having. Uh, that that and, and collaborative knowing that yeah yeah and knowing, knowing that. that yes and knowing knowing sort of your that's that goes back to what we talked about right at the beginning of the of the hour is know yourself know yeah. thyself and bring that information to the table and interestingly so the flip side to that are the women who have notoriously low blood pressure so if you're somebody that hovers around a hundred over fifty five. And now you're pregnant and you're in your third trimester and your blood pressure is 135 over 85. That's a pretty significant jump for you. Somebody who is who has not known you and who's just taking your blood pressure is going to go, oh, you're still okay. You know, you haven't hit that magic 140 over 90 threshold that deems this to be called preeclampsia. But you know yourself and you know yeah, wait a minute, but that is really high for me. Can we pe- can we pay more attention to this, please? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So having that, being able to speak up for yourself, know yourself, speak up for yourself, and then have a care provider that is willing to listen to you and work in a collaborative space. You know, and collaboration means both of you listening to what each other has to say. Going to this and finding what works, you know, that solution for as as a team yeah yep absolutely very cool uh thank you so much for this wonderful talk if people want to follow what you're doing or learn more information about the the uh foundation how can they do that well the easiest way would be to visit our our primary website which is preeclampsia.org and uh, and I'm sure you'll have a link to it or somebody can see the word spelled out on your podcast, but it's P-R-E-E-C-L-A-M-P-S-I-A. So preeclampsia.org is, is sort of the, the one-stop shopping. Um, there are a number of patient education materials on there that we make available to healthcare providers. I mean, we make them available to anybody, but the primary audience for them are healthcare providers. So if any of your listeners are working within any kind of healthcare system and want uh, an evidence-based, very simple to use patient education tool, those are also available on our website because we really do you know, believe, in, and I know you do as well, that's why you do this podcast, is, is getting information to the women so uh-huh. that they know what it is, you know, how do I get through this pregnancy and childbirth in the most empowered way possible, and that's with knowledge. Exactly. And I know there's a lot of, even though we're intended for new and expected parents, I know there's a lot of doulas that are out there listening to this podcast and childbirth educators. So it's great. I'll I'll make sure to link so that they can, you know, grab those resources both for themselves and for for their clients um, to then share with their care providers and have that really collaborative at all levels, the relationship on this topic. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful, so come say hi. 
And if you're looking to prepare for life with your newborn, then go to birthfulcourses.com and sign up. Do it before baby arrives to avoid unnecessary struggles. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Simply Breastfeeding and Expectful. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Also, the Birthful Podcast is part of the Parents on Demand Network. Find out more at parentsondemand.com. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me Friday when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Because you are stronger than your contractions. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, mighty one. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.